0: Roxy, I know one time you broke your sister's CDs that you found spiritually objectionable. (laughs) Thanks for bringing that back up. (laughs) But I have a feeling that was not the most cringe thing you did as an evangelical teenager. Wow, I feel it's hack. It was definitely not though. There were worse. Like, like what comes to mind?
1: Oh man. okay, top of mind, I had um on my first car, I proudly got a window decal of Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes that, like kneeling at the cross.
0: <laughs> it was so
1: mortifying.
0: I have seen those. Yeah, I hope Hobbes is saved.
1: Do animals go to heaven?
0: From Religion News Service, this is Saved by the City, a podcast from two single Christian women trying not to be too dorky in New York. I'm Caitlin Beatty. And I'm Roxy Stone.
2: I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. This week on The State of Belief.
1: I felt like if anyone was going to be speaking up, It was going to have to be somebody like me.
2: Faithful conversations around sexual orientation and gender identity in Texas with Auburn Peterson of Another Story. Also, getting ready for the 2024 vote with Adam Friedman, organizing an election strategist at Interfaith Alliance. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app.
1: What makes that whole car decal even more cringe is that I had a really cool car. <laughs> I had a Nissan 300CX, and I was very proud of it. I literally sold a horse so I could buy it.
0: Oh my gosh. I, I'll admit I don't know what a Nissan 300CX is. I'm guessing it's something very zippy,
1: Yes, it was sporty. It went much too fast. It is not a car mm. a 16-year-old who does not grasp for mortality should drive.
0: Did you ever get in a car accident?
1: Um, I didn't. I maybe it was
0: it was the, Jesus it was the watching over me, the decal <laughs> through the decal. <laughs> the decal protected you. Well, my first car was not cool at all. It was a Ford Taurus 2000. Mm-hmm. It was a family car. That I inherited and I had it all through the last two years of high school into college and my own Christian decal (laughs) because I this was very edgy and revelatory to me at the time, which was that I had a sojourner's bumper sticker that said, God is not a Republican or a Democrat.
1: Wow. See, that's not <laughs> cringe. That's just right on, you know?
0: But it is cringe because, <laughs> you know, obviously bumper stickers are not known for nuance. <sighs> mm, that right. th- this is not the purpose that bumper stickers serve in the world. And also, if I remember correctly, this was connected to Jim Wallace's book, yeah. God's Politics, yeah. and it yeah. was a whole media campaign. But This was phrase, in high school
1: that you had this, or was this college? No, this was in college. This was in college. Okay. Was in college. Okay. Um, <laughs> I had gotten rid of my Calvin Bupper sticker. But
0: <laughs> <laughs> the phrase God is not a Democrat was a lot smaller than God is not a Republican. It was almost oh, like yeah. God is not a Republican or a Democrat. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I suppose... Well, that was the bigger the, statement
1: at the time, right?
0: Exactly. That that was the... That was the
1: counterculture statement.
0: Exactly. We both had our very subtle Christian decals. I did have a more precious
1: but long-forgotten childhood memory pop up this week.
0: Mm. I remember
1: as a kid at church, we played a version of the game cops and robbers. Do you remember that one where like one person like there's one marble that sort of represents the jewelry or the bank loot or whatever the robbers got from Mm -hmm. their heist and Mm -hmm. half the kids are cops, half are robbers and the robbers are trying to like pass the marble to get it to home base or whatever. And the cops Mm -hmm. are trying to catch the marble. Right. Well, we played a version called Bible smugglers and KGB.
0: Oh, my gosh. As children? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Did you know what the KGB was as a child? Maybe you did.
1: Uh, Vaguely, they were, like, bad cops.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right, right.
1: Yeah. But, yeah, like, the marbles were the Bible, obviously, and we had to, like, pass them off to each other to get them back to home base, which was really, like, into the Soviet Union, right? without the KGB (laughs) catching us.
0: Okay, so the game was some of you were Christians with Bibles Mm -hmm. trying to bring the Bible into a place that did not want Bibles without being caught by the KGB. This is just light playground (laughs) imagination. I assume this came to mind recently because Brother Andrew, who was known as the Bible smuggler, died recently. He wrote about Sneaking Bibles into communist countries, China, the Soviet Union, and then had a book about his adventures and his risky life called God Smuggler. And this must have lodged in your imagination as a child. Like, that story must have seemed very exciting.
1: I had forgotten all about it until last week. Um, And then I was like, why am I so... Like, why am I feeling so much around Brother Andrew's death, you know? And then I was like remembering, and I remember reading the book really young, and I remembered playing this game. Like, it just kind of came to me. I don't know if other people played a version of that game or if that was something that was unique to our church, but I do remember being so taken by Brother Andrew's story and this idea of smuggling Bibles behind the Iron Curtain, which felt very, like, dramatic, mm. you know? Um mm-hmm. It just felt like a lot of intrigue and very heroic and, you know, kind of like a Christian James Bond, probably.
0: (laughs) Without the amazing
3: tuxes.
0: (laughs) Well, I guess I was a heathen child because I was busy making my Barbies bump up against each other.
1: (laughs) I, I did that, too. <laughs> I think that is a universal childhood experience.
0: <laughs> yes. Especially with that amazing mm. car they got to drive around. But are there other childhood games that we might have played that we could put an evangelical spin on? As as evangelicals like to do, to take yeah, something from is... mainstream culture and, like, appropriate.
1: Right. Absolutely. I think we can do this. Yes. Let's test our evangelical chops. How quickly so I, can we come up with an evangelical spin?
0: So I will, I will name like a childhood game for you and you have to try to Christianify it. Christianize it.
1: <laughs> Perfect.
0: Hide and seek.
1: Oh. Hmm. The people who are hiding. I mean, they're obviously hiding from demons. Maybe witches.
0: <laughs> we are in a spooky season now.
1: Yeah, so it's a pretty scary hide-and-seek because, mm. you know, if you get caught, mm. then you can get indoctrinated. Um, and then and then you become one of them, and then you have to help find the other Christians who are also hiding.
0: I thought you were going to go in the opposite direction, which is that the people hiding are people who are unsaved, and we have to go seek and save the lost, and then once you find a hiding person, they join the evangelistic effort.
1: Mm. That's a good way Just- to go too. All right, all right, <laughs> all right. Uh, your turn.
0: Capture the flag. Shepherd the sheep. We're like sheep. Like two churches are like sheep stealing <laughs> back <Wow>. and forth. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's really accurate. <laughs> okay what about dodgeball
1: oh man I mean I think that you're dodging temptations right Mm. so you know Mm -hmm. maybe we even write on on the dodgeballs like lying (laughs) cheating on your homework
0: (laughs) (laughs) yes you're trying to dodge (gasps) disobeying mom playing with your barbies in that aforementioned manner yeah you're dodging sin
1: yes exactly All right, last one. Telephone.
0: This feels like an obvious evangelistic metaphor.
1: I think it is. I think we may have played it in Sunday school,
0: actually. (laughs) Yes, I, I know I played telephone in youth group. The message would be something evangelistic, and then you try to see if you can preserve the integrity of the message as it's being passed along. And this, again, feels like a very obvious metaphor for the ways that the gospel is like transmitted across time and space and is like changed in the process.
1: Distorted. Yes. Even. And that
0: we have to get back to the original message.
1: Oh, so that's like the Bible lesson at the end of it.
0: Yeah. Like you play telephone, you realize how off the message is. And it's like, and this is why we have to get back to the original teaching because of how easily it becomes distorted. That's good. Maybe we should write youth group curriculum and try to monetize this.
1: That was one of my first jobs out of college.
0: (laughs) <laughs>
1: yeah. That's youth group <laughs> curriculum.
0: I forgot about that. So yes, <laughs> I, did, your... I did
1: both young Sunday school and youth group curriculum, so you know. Yes. Uh,
0: You're already a pro.
1: But yeah, it's a way that you can make money, folks.
0: Going back to the Bible smuggling game, it it strikes me just the story of Brother Andrew, how dramatic of a story that is. And mm-hmm. like, I don't remember hearing about him specifically growing up, but certainly there was a period of time where martyrdom was like enjoying a comeback.
1: Oh man, <laughs> it really was. I-
0: like, D- DC Talk produced yes, The Voice of the a, Martyrs a, a book about telling stories of people who had died for the faith over the course of church history. But then, of course, the message was also like, you need to be ready to do the same thing. The Mm -hmm. reason that we are sharing these stories with you is, are you ready to kind of... Right, lay down your life in this way. I know we've talked in the past about Cassie Bernal, one yeah. of the victims of Colum- the Columbine shooting, and how she was remembered as a kind of modern day martyr. And that d- really stuck in my imagination because it wasn't some Dutch guy overseas. Right. who didn't really know what the Soviet Union was. It was oh, a school shooting. That's something I can really imagine now unfortunately and maybe i need to be ready to do the same thing it's just right. so intense
1: yes i mean i i really remember latching on to that messaging pretty young with elizabeth elliot jim elliot was like this missionary he and his wife and some others that went to somewhere
0: yes they were in a very remote amazonian region of ecuador
1: he was he was killed and she went on to stay and continue to evangelize this tribe. And this was like a very, you know, heroic, inspiring story. And then, you know, and I think that that was just, that was such an overarching message. And even, you know, some of the fiction books that I read at the time often had like martyrs or people, you know, Christian, the Christian fiction I was reading, like often sort of had that same sort of high stakes martyr situation where people were giving up their lives for God or risking their lives for God. And, you know, I mean, you're a little kid, you're always looking for heroes. And I think that was, Mm -hmm. those were the heroes I was like presented with.
0: So some of this, I wonder how much of it was being fed to us through like book publishing and different campaigns, ministry campaigns, and how much of it was just the way that children's and teenagers' brains work. Mm Mm-hmm thinking back to being a teenager and really wanting a strong sense of identity and seeking that out. And I knew, I knew I was a Christian. I knew that was like core, but I didn't, I didn't know exactly what that meant Mm -hmm. or what I should do with my life. That was also like a really big question mark at that time. Like, you need to be living on purpose, on fire. I literally went to acquire the fire. (laughs) I acquired the fire. Like There was a sense that we were being prepared to go out into the world and do big things. And I think Mm -hmm. that was appealing to me because it gave me and many others, I imagine, a sense of identity and like how to live your life.
1: I mean, I think that's really right at, at a time when, like you said, you're trying to find an identity, you're trying to understand who you are. And there's this, both a community that you're feeling in a church, but also I think you're presented with a a way to live, like everything from, you know, the rules of living, the purity codes of living, which are, you know, a big deal in youth group, especially, but then also to who are your enemies, who is, you know, mm-hmm. who is out to get you, you know, and, and and you're sort of getting this picture of like you're found and there's a lost world out there and you have like a mission and that mm-hmm. is, that does feel really significant at that age and grounding at that age and I think also exciting um, mm-hmm. because there's something not just life and death, but like eternal life and eternal yes. damnation like is at stake and you you can do something about it.
0: I mean, literally the stakes could not be higher. Right. We're talking about eternity. If we're talking right. about eternity and we're talking about people spending eternity in a really great place or a really, really bad place. Yeah. <laughs> like, and you, it is up to you to... Like, you have a role and a responsibility to make sure that people are going to the good place. Um, Why wouldn't you do that? Like, and in fact, how could you not? You know, like... Right. This is why we didn't hear stories about Christians who just, like, faithfully faithfully showed up to work and did their jobs and, like, provided for their families or, I don't know, you know, ordinary... Faithfulness was not really on the table, even no. though the vast, vast majority of Christians at any given time and place—that is—that is how they have understood Christian faith. It's but that really, was not, that didn't feel like an option.
1: It didn't, and I, it's interesting that we both had that experience. And it would be—I would love to hear, you know, from more people in our sort of generation if that was also the like. Part of their experience too, because I do think like I, it took me a long, long time, like well into my maybe early 30s, <laughs> you know, when before I felt like that I could just have kind of a normal, ordinary faithfulness, that it didn't have Mm -hmm. to be, like, my job, uh, you know, I went into a career in Christian publishing Mm -hmm. because I felt like, I always felt like from the time I was somewhere, you know, in teenage years or whatever, I was like, my job, my career, everything has to be about Mm -hmm. my faith and about God, and it just, Mm -hmm. the idea that anything less than all of that Being dedicated to my faith. My utmost.
0: Your utmost?
1: My utmost (laughs) for the highest. No, for his highest. My utmost for his highest. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Some of you will get that.
0: The word utmost is, well, first of all, I do not use it in regular conversation (laughs) very much at all. And actually, you can never be sure that you are living your utmost because like,
3: you can always always be doing
0: more or you can always think about ways that you failed. Yes. <laughs> it creates a lot of performance anxiety. Oh my
1: gosh. Yes.
0: Like just never feeling secure in the sense of doing like being okay enough for God. Like being enough in before God.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I personally can say that yes. That was definitely the case for me. I mean, I think there was a sense that like there were always minutes of the day that I wasn't thinking about God or doing something for God, or there were conversations at school or with my parents or things I did, you know, that I could, that were always something I could scrutinize later and be like, did I really, Mm. did I really give my utmost for God in that situation? And I think, you know, everything from like, you know, everything from like school interactions to, to, being with my boyfriend, I just felt like there was just mm-hmm. always ways that I was falling short and um and I think that did create a lot of performance anxiety for me in terms of thinking you know in terms of thinking about whether God was proud of me, whether i mm. you know whether I was like living up to these other models that I had been given mm-hmm. of you know of martyrdom or of like this life of sacrifice, um, these missionaries, these doctors, these, you know, Bible smugglers, Mm. was I really giving it all, you know?
0: (laughs) Performance anxiety. I know
1: I'm a little worried about that word, (laughs) (laughs) that phrase. I mean,
0: okay. For our listeners, this is Caitlin. I'm just now realizing that performance anxiety might be a sexual term that I didn't intend. So perfection anxiety.
1: Ooh, I like that, yeah. Today's guest knows a thing or two about perfection anxiety.
0: Charles Marsh is the author of the new book, Evangelical Anxiety, a memoir.
3: What 10, 12-year-olds read any text with the intensity of an evangelical child reading the Bible?
1: Our conversation with Charles is coming up just after the break. Religion News Service is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics.
0: If you like what we're doing at Saved by the City, do let us know. Throw us a rating or a review, which goes a long way to helping get the word out about the show. Or share this episode with a friend,
1: which is our main way of building an audience. Or shoot us an email at sbtcpodcast@religionnews.com. at religionnews.com. We'd love to hear from you.
2: I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. The State of Belief is a weekly podcast with a potent mix of spiritual wisdom, political strategy, and hopeful commentary in a series of inspiring conversations celebrating our diversity and bringing us together to, in the words of the great James Baldwin, achieve our country. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet, distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app.
0: Today's guest is Charles Marsh. Charles is a professor of religious studies at the University of Virginia and director of the Project on Lived Theology.
1: Charles grew up as a preacher's kid in the Deep South in the 1970s. He writes about those experiences in his new book, Evangelical Anxiety. Welcome to the show, Charles.
0: Good to see you, Charles.
3: Yeah. And thanks so much for making this happen. This is the only podcast I've looked forward to doing. Oh. <laughs> <Don't>, <laughs> we'll see, you know, in an hour or so. But no, I, um, I'm i really, really grateful for, for your time and interest. Yeah.
0: Obviously, you grew up as a preacher's son in the Deep South in the 1970s. This was a slightly earlier time than when Roxy and I grew up. We won't say by how much, but just it was before our time. (laughs) Slightly is a very
3: (laughs) kind way of phrasing that, Caitlin.
0: So give us a sense of what that environment and time was like. For example, what would have been like a typical Sunday for you as a kid?
3: Yeah. Sundays were morning to bedtime church but I, I was in church almost every day. We began on Sunday morning with Sunday school, uh, or usually donuts and, and Coca-Cola little in the bottles, the little short bottles. And then we had Sunday school, then you know the, uh, the main worship service that lasted an hour and 15 minutes. And then usually some kind of lunch after church, there was a very short break in the afternoon. And then we all reconvened for Sunday evening services beginning with training union. Training union. When Baptists were not uh, terribly afraid of the word union. <laughs> um, and uh, training union was like Sunday school at night. Mm. So, you know, the, the kids broke down in age groups again. And then we had evening service. Mm-hmm. And then there was some kind of event afterwards. And I was, an, I was an only child as well, in addition to being a minister's kid. And so maybe I felt the expectation not only to be at church every time the door was open, but also, you know, to inhabit my vocation as a young man of God with as much diligence and mindfulness as I could. You know, the the sermons, the services were very evangelistic. Every service and really every gathering through the week, whether it was Wednesday, family meals and Bible studies or youth groups on Friday nights or special revivals, visiting speakers was marked more than anything else by, you know, the summons to reckon with with that one overwhelming question, you know, are you ready this moment when clouds will part and Jesus will appear and we'll be taken into glory. I always was pretty sure I'd be left behind, but, you know, that was the paradox.
0: We've talked quite a bit, so I didn't do the multiple altar calls, but I had anxieties about many other things, including if I walked into a room and all of my family members were not there and I was expecting them to be there, was this the rapture? You know, like uh, an empty room could be very foreboding. So
2: mm-hmm.
0: so this is a trans-denominational kind of anxiety. <laughs> Is Christianity an inherently anxious faith?
3: I, I think that whether it's inherently anxious, I will I will leave open. I learned to read the Bible with an intensity that, I mean, what 10, 12-year-olds read any text with the intensity of an evangelical child reading the Bible, right? Wanting to hear... The word that's spoken and, and and discern you know God's word, but uh, yeah, I do think that you know there are doctrines that we learned as children. I mean, not only uh, the doctrine of hell and all of the attendant terrors of being faced at such an early age with the prospect of you know eternal separation and, and punishment, but I think more insidiously. Lessons about the body. And all of these I know you've talked about in the past, but I think that the kind of mechanism that we learn early is to distrust any perceived obstacle or disruption or impurity that may come between us as individuals and our walk with Christ. That distrust. Just katsu vine, you know. Say
1: more about that. When you say distrust, obstacles that might come in the way, what are some things that you're thinking of? I mean, I think definitely about, you know, sexual temptation, but you're saying like this distrust becomes so pervasive. Yeah. Um, You're literally describing it as like an invasive species. So what other things are you thinking about when you say like this distrust permeated your own experience and maybe others as well in evangelicalism?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's a paradox, isn't it? We are encouraged to trust in God and even to trust in God to fulfill our desires. But then when we begin to experience our desires and to hold those desires that we know as individual selves to be so much a part of our life energy, we, we quickly run up against a, a different lesson, and it's that desire it, itself must be sort of held in distrust because it's so tightly wound around the ego. I ended up at a, at a Christian college because I not only you know, was convinced that they were channeling God's will to me, but I also began to believe that had I gone to private college, I would have crossed over. You know, I would have bought a, I don't know, rented an old place in the French Quarter and um, and smoked and drank and slept around and lived the writing life, which is, of course, exactly what I wanted to do. <laughs> but I think that just, it does, it takes over everything. And so, like, even the aspiration just to be you know, happy uh, or to find pleasure in life, becomes marked by that distrust.
1: Yeah, I mean, happiness is not the goal, right? Happiness is for evangelicals is like, well, not just evangelicals, but I mean, I certainly grew up with that sense of distrusting happiness because I was supposed to be sacrificing, I was supposed to be a martyr, I was supposed to be saving souls. You know, like there was a lot. Of sense of this is all so much more important than your happiness. And they felt like they must be mutually exclusive in a lot of ways. I remember you saying like who reads with more intensity than a 12-year-old with their Bible. I would have added also my Bible and my utmost for his highest by Oswald Chambers, which had like a 365-day journal, you know, of readings. And I read that with a lot of intensity and also recently like went back and read cuz it had like margins where you took notes. And I was so like I re- read it and I felt so bad for this poor little Roxy cuz she was so concerned every day about the sins about the a lot of what you're describing, you know. And I I I wouldn't have described myself as I had a pretty happy childhood, but I there was this underlying thing for me of like concern over all of my actions every day that I was following God. Did I love God enough? Did I need to recommit myself? Should I have shared the gospel
0: with some kid at school? Like it was just kind of always there.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It seems
0: like, and I'm, I'm not saying this in a prescriptive way, but when I think about 12-year-old Roxy or 12-year-old Charles, mm-hmm. having such Compassion for your younger self because that was all that was given to you to understand yourself and the world. And you were trying the best that you knew how. And you just want to like scoop up that child, and be like, you don't have to be worried. You don't have to be consumed with anxiety and concern and worry. And I'm not that I'm thinking about specific adults in your lives and saying like they should have not done that. But it was a whole cultural milieu that we all. Were are exposed to in some way at a young age, it's not helpful. It strikes me as like not a helpful framework to provide children.
3: No, I think that something you, you say moves me deeply. And it's that awakening of compassion for the child that we were and under the constraint and, you know, under the barrage of those teachings I think that seems to me to be a turning point in <laughs> the road to healing.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Right. And so I guess the question is, I mean, does that seem to you like a, resonate with your story? I mean, is that kind of the work of restoration that, that we're wanting to put together here, That that moment where we can stop running from that child and look at that child with compassion and love that child and say... Hold on. You're going to be okay. Jesus is not going to come, but you're going to be okay. (laughs) You'll
0: probably get to have sex before he comes back. (laughs) Don't worry. (laughs) Yeah, the driving
1: concern of my teens. Oh, totally. Totally yeah it does resonate i I mean I think this podcast even has been a little bit of that i think for for me and i and and maybe for Caitlin too of even being able to like look back at some of those times and laugh a little bit, but also realize I am who I am in some ways, you know as a result of those years and find both the beauty in that time as you were describing, like this community of people, this sense of purpose, this care that I felt there, but also you know, being able to kind of recognize and understand some of the ways that that it was hurtful or and your word of anxiety was new for me in terms of framing some of the ways that I had some of these things that we've been talking about, like the fear of hell or rapture or or this underlying constant concern that I wasn't pure enough or holy enough or that, you know, I was disappointing God every Mm -hmm, day. mm -hmm. I hadn't really connected that to a sense of anxiety. And I felt that that really rang true to me in reading your book and in listening to you that I think even offered some clarity because I think fear was the wrong word. Like that anxiety feels more perpetual
3: in a way than like
1: adrenaline fear. It felt more like this eating away.
3: A kind of ambient Mm -hmm. quality. I I remember when I suffered my first major anxiety attack in 1981 as a first-year divinity school student, having really felt overwhelmed and overpowered and unmade by the kind of blunt force of these anxiety symptoms that kind of all collided in in this, this one episode As as an evangelical Christian, though I I read and I was curious and I studied philosophy and English at my Christian college, I didn't have any way of understanding what was happening to me, what had happened to me. I shared our subculture's suspicion of psychology. You know, psychology is the psychotherapy, pharmacology, psychiatry, it's all the devil's playground. And or if it's if it has usefulness, it's of limited scope because you know we have the ultimate healer in our hearts and we, we don't need to resort to that. but not only do we not need to, we shouldn't in any case. I fell back on all of these kind of devotional sources or biblical protocols, kind of spiritual mind games that I had developed over the years and Chambers book was one I remember, opening, for the first time in in a long time, and this is, was I 23, 24 years old, I say a long time, I probably had not read the book since my freshman or sophomore year in college. What was I hoping for in a state of immobilizing anxiety when I turned open the pages of, of the book and read lines like, bear the scars of the Messiah and rejoice in the scars? Consider how great a gift is bodily affliction. Each time a believer is chastised by God and becomes sick, he should be glad. Do not scurry around in search of healing. Wow. And the more I read Chambers, uh, you know, in the wake of this event, the worse I felt. And it really created a kind of spiraling um, effect insofar as... It intensified everything that was already happening, and it kind of closed all the options down to this one very narrow kind of bit of, I mean, it's Christian masochism. There's no other word for
1: that. Yeah, my utmost is a lot to give
0: (laughs) all the time. Charles, (laughs) hearing you describe the kind of, you're experiencing profound generalized anxiety disorder. You've had your first panic attack, but you don't have a way of understanding what's happening to you. So everything is spiritualized. Significant period of my senior year of college of depression and anxiety. And I had no idea what was happening. And I spiritualized everything. And I would go to the chapel on campus and pray for hours and think it was like, it just, the spiritualized only model was so unhelpful. (laughs) And that's, that's, it wasn't until I went to the nurse on campus and said, something's really wrong with me and I don't know what's going on. And she said, you obviously are experiencing a major depressive episode. Let's get you on Lexapro. And within a few weeks, I was like, I feel more like myself. And it was that, and I'm not saying, and therefore don't pray or therefore, but I just wish that I had understood and been given a framework for understanding what was happening that, again, comes back to compassion. It's okay to need medicine. (laughs) Your brain is sick. Uh,
3: Yes. And yet, Caitlin, you somehow had the resources to make your way to student health in a few weeks. I mean, that's that's a long time to be suffering, but... I mean, I would like want to know how that emerged in your thoughts as a as a an option that you could you know pursue. It took me seven <laughs> seven years. Well,
1: I think that might be the difference of generations. Yes, yes. A little bit, you know, because I, I do think it was a little less stigmatized for us as it was uh, when you were a kid.
0: I went to a Christian college, and even the fact that we had like a mental health. Resource Center, I remember there were—it was very clear that is an available resource to you. This is not biblical counseling. This is getting—mental health is a real challenge on a lot of college campuses, and we want to provide resources. And that is not in conflict with the Christian faith that the community is oriented around. As we
1: close— I do want to end, maybe it's not a hopeful note, I don't know, but at least in a place of like, where are you now? And thinking about, as as we've talked about this, and, and it's brought up stuff for me too, you know, I think Christianity has this idea of God as love, as Jesus as love, and that feels so hard to wrap an anxious mind around when your ideas of who God is have been so much shaped by his wrath, his judgment, his demands of you, his expectations, like all of that. And so I'm wondering as you know that you've come to be able to to untangle those anxieties from your view of God.
3: Yeah, thank you. That's such a great question. And I you know have been the beneficiary of witnesses of exemplars of men and women and you know my my cloud of witnesses who have said to me come go with me Charles to a different way of, of being Christian and to a different place and I, I I think of you know Fannie Lou Hamer for example it's, I feel like she led me into a new understanding of what it means to be a Christian. She she loved to talk about the civil rights movement, but also about God and the the heart of God, and that sense of God's just super abundant love uh, that you so elegantly um, describe, Roxanne. Uh, I think opens us to all that is robust and real and generative in, in, the, in the Christian story. And it, for me, it was, it was all there in the story of African-American Christianity from slavery through civil rights in the beauty and passion and embodiment of song and belief and confession. I, I, I found in that story a new birth I think America, honestly, we all could find in that story a very rich kind of counter narrative to the story of American Christianity that kind of builds on exceptionalism and and whiteness and control and triumph.
1: That is a word.
3: (laughs) Thank you for asking that question.
1: Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Caitlin, going back to something you mentioned earlier about thinking about your life and your service to God in a more, in in with a perspective more on like ordinary, everyday faithfulness. Mm-hmm. What does that look like to you now?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, whatever my answer is, I'm not very good at it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am acutely aware that I, I still feel the sense that I should be doing more mm-hmm. or like paying more attention. I do think I've been released from some of that perfection anxiety by recognizing that like how you do things in your life matters, even Mm -hmm. if the thing that you're doing isn't big or splashy, Mm -hmm. like even just how I interact with colleagues or Mm -hmm. editing a manuscript in a diligent and thoughtful and curious way encouraging authors like i wouldn't think of any of that as directly helping to evangelize the world it's just doing something doing something with love and care and excellence matters for the people that we are becoming mm-hmm. and the kind of world we want to help create yeah. and contribute to.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think I I would say very similar things. I I still feel drawn to the big splashy thing, not always like in connection to God or my faith. I think that's just still part of like the millennial plus evangelical hangover of like view on, <laughs> on work and on purpose in the world. But the challenge to me is one of feeling contentment. And I think that I grew mm-hmm. up feeling like maybe that was a bad word. Like if you were content, you were complacent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what I'm trying to challenge in life now is like being content might actually be a sign of gratitude for what God's given you. And um, maybe you're not, don't always need to be striving. You know, i sure there's a balance there that I need to find but I think like having gratitude with my life with my friendships with my work with my apartment with you know all that I have and not and not feeling this sense of I need more I want more I have to achieve more um mm-hmm. so I think that's a big a big one for me I also would just say in terms of like ordinary faithfulness for me that I think the way that that's manifesting the most for me right now would just be like going to church every Sunday. Yeah. (laughs) There have been a lot of periods in my life where that's been really hard. And I think right now I see it as a commitment that, you know, sort of Mm -hmm. shapes and forms me through the week. But showing up and being with this community of people that I've chosen to like live life with, I think has been, you know, that's been actually really important for me right now in this season in terms of being like really faithful to something.
0: Choosing to commit to a community in a way seems harder than like smuggling Bibles. (laughs) Doesn't it though? (laughs) Certainly less glamorous. Maybe especially at this stage of our lives in New York City, like choosing to just keep showing up for other people Mm -hmm. is a really big deal. And
1: hard work and boring work in a way you know it's not mm-hmm. it's not the glamorous thing and it's nobody's going to write a book about it <laughs> nobody's going to sing songs <laughs> of our martyrdom <laughs>
0: Nobody's going to write about how you patiently listen to the man with bad coffee breath tell you about his weekend. You are so
1: traumatized
0: by church coffee breath something, yeah, something happened. something <laughs> happened. I don't know what it is. like it's a it's like an unearthed memory, <laughs> but it it just keeps coming back.
1: <laughs> the true sacrifice. <laughs> Saved by the City is a religion news service production. The producer is Jay Woodward and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. We get production assistance from Elizabeth Joy Windham.
0: Chaz Rousseau put together our look and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music.
1: We are Roxy Stone.
0: And Caitlin Beatty. Thanks Thanks
1: for for
3: listening.